Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, I'm joined today by Craig. I can't destroy you today, lads. I'm on very serious business. And Scott. Hello. In this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the British independent filmmaker Shane Meadows, who made a name for himself with a number of down-to-earth films set in the English Midlands. Meadows' films tend to be a mix of the gritty realism of kitchen sink dramas with a good helping of humour. Think Ken Loach, but funnier. But, having been inspired by Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, usually they have a core idea or setting based on his own experiences and are accompanied by a pop music soundtrack. After impressing, and often delighting us with his films in the past, Meadows largely dropped off of our radar, mostly because he stopped making films and moved into TV instead, most notably with the three sequel series for Channel 4 based on his 2006 film This Is England. TV is outside of our remit, so in this episode we're going to revisit Meadows' filmography and discover if he continues to impress and delight us, if cinema's loss is TV's gain, and if I'm the only one who thinks that he looks like Omid Jalili mixed with Alexei Sale. <laughs> we'll perhaps also discuss why we think he stopped making cameos with super dodgy wigs, and if this was a good or bad thing. Though, obviously stopping was a bad thing and doesn't really require discussion. The only feature film of Meadows we're not going to cover in this episode is his 2013 documentary The Stone Roses Made of Stone, primarily because Scott and Craig have multiple times described Ian Brown as a knob (laughs) and other less polite epithets, and I'm entirely content to remain ignorant of why they think that, my knobs I have knowledge of quota being more than full enough. (laughs) Uh, We're going to begin with his directorial debut, or feature film debut at least, Small Time from 1996, and Scott is going to tell us about that. Shane Meadows' first feature starts him off more or less as he will go on, on the mean streets of Midlands, uh, Nottingham here in particular, focusing on a gang of shady characters headed by Jumbo, Meadows himself, and Matt Hand as Malk, both petty thieves, but Jumbo has the added spice of wife-beating his... uh, wife, uh, Gina Kaweka's Ruby. Uh, Malk's partner, Dennis Smiles' Kate, has had enough of Malk's life of crime and hearing Jumbo's violence through the paper-thin walls of the council estate and wants to leave. Malk's being slowly talked around her position over the course of some small-time car boot larceny and drinking, but there's always that one last job. In this case, it says here, raiding a small New Age store that goes disastrously, leaving Jumbo, Malk and the rest of the gang facing varying kinds of music. Now, when we're putting these directorial retrospectives uh, together, often the primary interest is in seeing their first feature uh, is not so much seeing how they have improved, which thankfully in this case is immeasurably, uh, but to see if they are still interested in the same themes and ideas in space year this year as they were back in the dim and distant past, in this case, the mid-90s. And that's certainly the case here. Uh, Meadows' fascination with telling the underexplored stories of the disadvantaged English working classes uh, while not treating it as a kitchen sink drama misery porn. He's also someone I'd argue is often more concerned with characters than driving elaborately plotted narratives and certainly the latter half of that is on display here. There's not a great deal too small time to be honest. Um, it might just about qualify in the first half too if only I could make out more than half of what the people were saying. As is often the case with early micro-budget films of directors, there's a few technical issues with making and mixing that makes it a touch difficult to understand, particularly when Meadows is using the soundtrack as a driver, which is again another repeated motif. 
to to the point that I kind of gave up trying to hear what the characters were saying, uh, particularly when the music was blaring, which I think led to missing whatever plans were being made for the final heist. And it just felt like I'd missed a few scenes. And I think that's also why it's kind of tough to identify with or understand the characters' actions and lives. Small Time has been given some overly generous ratings on IMDb, to say the least, and while it won't necessarily warn anyone away from watching it as a curiosity after viewing his later better films, it's 100% not where he should be starting exploring his canon, unless you have a cheap wig and shell suit fetish. <laughs> I liken this in some ways to A Fistful of Fingers, which was the yeah, Edgar Wright's, uh, largely forgotten early work of Edgar Wright when we did our Edgar Wright episode. Yeah. That last year, Scott? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now I went back and looked at some of our earlier commentary or writing about Shane Meadows films and in the year 2008 I said I have yet to see a bad Shane Meadows film and in 2010 you Scott wrote Shane Meadows once this is reference to a later film Shane Meadows once again proves he's incapable of making a bad film <laughs> turns out <laughs> turns out yes um, so I've decided not to count small time yes because <laughs> it, it, it's garbage I had a really miserable time watching this, but I'm, I guess I'm also not counting it as one of his feature films. It's more, again, akin to A Fistful of Fingers, although that was better. It's a kind of curio of, um, and it, it's more just a kind of him finding his feet, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if, the genesis of this is like, it was one of his. He'd made a whole bunch of kind of shorter, smaller indie films with a bunch of his mates, which is effectively what this is. And it's all, uh, as far as I understand, basically all of this is improvised. That's why it has a bit of a mess of a kind of torturous path going away through it. Uh, it. It's almost like it is basically just him and his mates goofing around, and this is their last kind of hurrah before they all went off their separate ways. And I think it's mainly full of in-jokes, and the actual audience for this is the people that made it. Um, yes, I think there's something like that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so uh, to anyone else, it's just a kind of, it's a, it's a, a curios a bit of a, just a curiosity uh, to going back and seeing what he where he started from. Um, I didn't absolutely hate it, but there's I don't really have an awful lot positive to say about it other than it's there. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's hard to get behind. It's been like a fistful of fingers. Head was one of those films that was almost buried. It was very hard to get a hold of. Uh, hmm. Whereas this film had a BFI DVD release. Yeah, uh, and. It, probably ought not to have done if this was an extra in one of his later films that would be fine that's kind of where it belongs yeah as a separate release and so uh, no there's there's just so little here mm. and I, I didn't hate it that's not quite the right word it's just mostly it's boring which is generally the worst of sins in film i just i didn't see the point of it. i'm not sure what he was trying to say it wasn't funny it wasn't entertaining it's weird given the next film we're going to come on to that he it almost feels like he's using domestic violence here as the basis of a joke but not quite it, it's strange it feels like it's set up like that but it doesn't really go anywhere with it and it's one of the a couple of things that's included because this is this would be a dr- controversial dramatic point except that there's no actual point to it it's just in the film and then it's, then it's not in the film. Um, it doesn't yeah, really say anything about it. It's just there, and then it's not until it is again, and then it's not. And there's no real commentary or 
you know, th- th- there's not really anything to it other than it, it was just something they thought they'd put in at the time. That that will be something that shows that this guy's actually bad. As though him being a thief wasn't enough, you know, um, shows that he's worse than the other one. So you have someone to root yes. for rather than another guy. But it, it, it's not really saying anything. It's just there for the sake of being there. And it, it certainly it's it shows a of a maybe a, something of an immaturity in his uh, approach, which gets much more uh, clarified later on. I mean, even in his next film, um, it is uh, substantially uh, improved upon. So, yes. Yeah. And, I mean, the stuff that happens in it simply is interesting. There's, there's a point where one of the couples ends up going to somebody else's house. Yes. Uh, that was fun. They went to somebody else's house and then Shea Meadows' character turned up and, okay. <laughs> a substantial fine. volume of this film is people going around a car boot sale. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's just, I really, even for completions, I would say avoid this because it's, it's it's just so rubbish and the acting's appalling. Yeah. Uh, the woman playing Shane Meadows' character's wife or partner, whatever she is, yeah. she's awful. You do realise there's no point in telling a completionist to avoid something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry, I know what you mean. Yes, but, but <laughs> I don't care what your entirely logical point I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, no, it's just, it's uh, to keep with my, because otherwise my, my belief that I had never seen a Shane Meadows film, uh, which was an, on an incomplete sampling, now I have a complete sampling. If I don't count this, that holds true. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to not count this. Well, I, uh, I surprisingly, boys, did not watch this film. So I can say with some certainty that I have yet to see a bad Shane Meadows film. <laughs> Long may that continue. Um, and and I, I'm saying it because this doesn't count. I, I, I no longer have seen this. I, I raised <laughs> this from my memory. Talking of Shane Meadows films that are good, though, Craig, uh, we're going to move on to the first one that I ever saw, and I believe the first one that you ever saw, because we saw it when it was released. Yes. Pretty close there, too. And that's 24-7. So tell us about that, please. 24-7, which we watched uh, on a TV in your bedroom, as I understand, if I recall correctly. I believe so, back in the, the... dim distant time of the late 1990s right when it had come out on video yes um so i can't remember recording a podcast commentary with scott six years ago but i can remember (laughs) i can remember (laughs) clearly one night in 1990 well it would have probably been 1998 i suppose by that point i would imagine so yeah so 24 7 then alan darcy is a vagrant living in an abandoned railroad car somewhere outside of a nameless but instantly recognisable English Midlands town. The kind of town where youth have very little to do outside of gathering in gangs around street corners, procrastination the least of their acts, fighting and vandalism the worst. It's the kind of town we'll be talking about quite a lot tonight. Quite how Darcy, played by Bob Hoskins, ended up in that railroad car, filthy, unkempt and pretty much at death's door, is the topic of 24-7, the work which put Meadows on the radar as a British talent to watch. We pretty much immediately flash back an indeterminate period of time to find two local groups of youths, one ostensibly benign, the other openly antagonistic, engaging in a fistfight on the abandoned playing fields that make up so much of Britain's forgotten housing estates. Into the fracas comes Darcy, imploring both groups to engage in something more productive, namely the boxing club he's setting up to give the town's youth some purpose other than troublemaking. One impromptu penalty shootout later, Darcy has won his wager, and so begins the legend of the 101 Warriors. 24-7 sets out quite a bit of the template that Meadows would follow in the coming years, drawing on his own background and experiences growing up in a town just like this. Absent and or irresponsible fathers, wasted youth, urban deprivation. 
Its cast of largely unknown faces, one or two British soap regulars and a decidedly fresh-faced James Corden aside, are fantastically authentic in their roles as the patchwork of working-class characters whose stories gravitate around the 101 Warriors, and Hoskins, to his credit, blends in well among them. Meadows' penchant for working in a largely improvisational fashion pays a great dividend in immersing the audience in the movie's air of authenticity, a fact that feels particularly refreshing in hindsight given that post-pulp fiction seemingly every independent filmmaker and their grandmother were precision-tooling their scripts to ape the smart-ass, pop-culture, reverential dialogue of the zeitgeist. To be sure, 24-7 is a lot closer to Ken Loach than it is to Quentin Tarantino. Shot in contrast-tastic 16mm black and white by Ashley Rowe, 24-7 also looks the part in that authentically grainy, lo-fi way that the format tends to complement the rough-cast council housing and social subsistence which dominates this part of the English Midlands. It's not a multiplex-pleasing look, to be sure, but Meadows doesn't strike me as the kind of director who'd be as interested in courting a Marvel movie as he is simply sharing his experience of growing up bereft of much guidance or opportunity. Here it fits the tone well, whether that's intentional or, as one suspects, purely a function of budget. If I have a criticism of 24-7, it's that visiting it again now, some quarter century later, I find it somewhat lacking in sophistication. But again, I'd probably contend that this is not Meadows' primary concern. What 24-7 lacks in nuance, it more than makes up with a vital humanity that feels lacking these days. And while it's arguably one of the lesser films we'll discuss this episode, I'd still recommend it to pretty much anyone. Yes, still really like this. I'm, I'm very pleased to find I go back and I've not seen this in a long time now. And yeah. I still really like it. Yeah, I'd literally seen it that one time with you. And uh, I was I was almost worried about going back to watch it, but very much enjoyed it again to, uh, a couple I'll of nights ago. I, I was too. And mm. um, not as worried as I was going to going back to one other film we're going to talk about later because of how effusive I was about that film. Mm. But at the time. But yes, I was a bit worried. I don't think... I, well, obviously, I, I had to bought the, the DVD, but until I dusted that off for this rewatching, I'm pretty sure I hadn't watched that again. No! <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I, I, I should have warned you to sit down, Craig, like I admonished you for not doing to me earlier <laughs> off to make. But uh, yeah, it's it's just a really affecting film. Bob Hoskins is great in it. The characters feel like real people. They're not given a huge amount of space to breathe to to become like fully drawn characters, but they read quite quickly as like real people. There's good sort of banter between them, and it's just a rewarding film. And I can, in many ways, it feels quite real. And now, I don't advocate violence. I think sometimes violence is necessary, but I don't think violence is a good thing. I don't think. Dealing with violence with violence is a good thing. At the same time, though, Les Battersby, or um, whatever <laughs> yes. Christian's actual character is in this, may be the most deserving of violence a character has been that I've seen in a film in a good long time. <laughs> because that guy deserves a kicking. <laughs> and so kind of kudos to him, I think, for making such an incredibly hateful character. <laughs> it's a fairly small film in scope, but that's fine. It doesn't need to be anymore. I don't think it's trying to be anymore. It's a, as with a great many of Shea Meadows' films, it's based on real experiences he had or his co-writer in all of these films, Paul Fraser had. In this case, I think it was a football club that they were in together that um, this was based on, but the idea of seeing people lost to drugs and things in these the towns he grew up in and the, the hopelessness and that somebody gave them some hope and that comes through in this. 
it's something I'll talk about a bit later. But for all the Shane Meadows films deal with a lot of bleakness, despair sometimes even, and there's some nasty things happening, there's always a kernel of hope in there. They're not as downbeat as you might think they would be, and this is films there too, yes, while horrible things happen, and particularly to Bob Hoskins' character, there, there's some hope that he's left a legacy of the people, they, they've stopped fighting with each other, and that people have got friendships or things have improved in people's lives and his films from this point onwards really are marked out by while everything can be entirely crappy there's hope uh, and that's kind of nice to see it's not just in in a completely downbeat view of the world Mm. no one throws a kestrel in the bin at the end of this film (laughs) (laughs) just thinking how how times have changed when you talk about this film having a hateful character in it and it not being James Corden. <laughs> <laughs> James Corden's entirely acceptable in this film. That is a revelation. Mm. Yes. Uh, um, I, it turns out, as it happens, um, I've not really seen an awful lot of Shane Meadows' early catalogue and I hadn't seen 24-7, uh, of all things, until the other day there. Um, yeah, don't have an awful lot to add over what you're saying. Uh, it is um, yeah, a small scale in its ambition, but I think it's all the more affecting for it. Um, the characters, you know, feel as with almost every film we'll talk about, feel like, very real. I feel like the people mm-hmm. could actually exist and do actually exist uh, because they've been maybe not drawn exactly from real life, but close enough to it. Uh, and it, it, it makes for a, a very affecting watch. Um, one that, a story that feels like it could actually have happened. This would not be surprised me if it showed up in your um, local, as a, as a news story in your local newspaper, uh, that kind of thing. Um, it all feels very reasonable. It's an absolute masterclass by Bob Hoskins, who I don't normally associate as being like one of the best actors in the world. Um, he has his moments, but and he this is definitely one of his moments. Um, feels completely convincing as, as what he does in this film. So yeah, it all makes for a, a very... I don't know if enjoyable is quite the right word for it, but um, yes, it's uh, it, it, it makes for a very kind of compelling watch, if, if nothing else. Uh, I, I do feel invested in, in all the characters, all the youths, and, and seeing what they're going to get up to in, in future. And uh, um, as you say, did kind of leave you with that kernel of hope that things might actually be better going forward than it had been in the past. And uh, some one person who can make a difference in other people's lives, that kind of thing, um, which is... Yeah, again, kind of emblematic of what um, Meadows is trying to get across in a lot of his work. So, yes, a very great, good place to start your journey. Um, it would be into his catalogue if you chose to do that. Yeah, um, Craig, you and I were talking about this last um, time we spoke when we were preparing for this episode too. It's like that the the Bob Hoskins performance has really stuck with us. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you felt like going back that it was as good as you remembered. I certainly thought it was. Um, just, um, perhaps bizarrely, Bob Hoskins' performance was the thing that I recalled least about the film, but I suppose by virtue of that, it's probably the thing that pleasantly surprised me the most returning to it because, like you say, Scott, I don't necessarily think of Bob Hoskins when, you know, when someone mentions that sort of calibre of an actor, but he is. He's really, really good and really compelling and... He's not normally an actor who can come across as all that naturalistic, I suppose, but this is perhaps the most naturalistic that I've I've ever seen him. Um I suppose Darcy's quite a he's quite a mellow, likable character, and I suppose that's probably you know, from what I've seen of Bob Hoskins being interviewed and stuff, that's probably not a massive stretch for him. But it's probably why he fits in so well with the rest of the film where people are well 
we're not working with trained actors here, really, are we? Um, these are all just sort of, I guess, I don't know if they're, don't know if they're friends or acquaintances. I mean, sometimes Shane Meadows uses his family in films. Um, these are not trained actors; they're not professional actors. And yeah, another trade that he's going to go on to replicate through pretty much his entire career as well. Yeah, absolutely. And they're working largely improvisationally, so they're really all they're bringing to these roles is themselves and their own sense of humour, uh, their own sense of humour rather. So I suspect that's kind of why Bob Os- Hoskins, <laughs> Bob Hoskins, sorry, um, <laughs> it's hard not to. It's it? hard not to. Oh, that's Bobo. that's why he, <laughs> that's why he fits in so well. Um, with the with the sort of aesthetic and the uh, the the atmosphere of the film, so yeah, it was one of those pleasant surprises to go back and um, actually have something deliver above expectations on a rewatch after after so much time has passed. See, so, you know, I, I didn't like the film as a whole, but we talked not so long ago, and I guess I think it was the last year about the Long Good Friday, and I never really bought Bob Hoskins as a gangster. Mm. Mm. Not, it wasn't a complete miscasting. I've seen other people be worse, but in this, like the just like he's a really sympathetic character, and it's kind of slightly shy guy, a bit lonely, but like really caring about these kids. I totally bought him as that. It was this really believable performance, mm. um, and that's kind of key to this. Like you, you believe that he cares. Yeah, it's a it's a very affecting performance, and like uh, I just kind of want to see him do more similar it can't now he's dead unfortunately but like, I'd love to see Bob Hoskins do more roles like that um, from beyond certainly, certainly. <laughs> is this or Super Mario Brothers <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough choice but you know I think I might settle on the side of this this just has the edge after that. <laughs> so we'll move on then to a room for Romeo Brass true yes so in naturally the Midlands <laughs> 12-year-old Romeo Brass, Andrew Shim, lives with his mum and sister and spends most of his time with his next-door neighbour and best friend, Knox, Ben Marshall. Things rub along pretty normally for Romeo for the bulk of the time, with his biggest issue being accused of eating the chips he was supposed to bring home for the chippy for his mum and sister. <laughs> A slanderous charge, of course, encountered only by the fact he didn't eat all of the chips, just <laughs> most of them. Two things occur, though, which, in various ways, upset Romeo's life. His absent father, Frank Harper, returns, seeking a relationship with him, something in which Romeo is interested in having absolutely no part, and he begins a friendship of sorts with Paddy Considine's Morel, a strange man more than twice Romeo's age, though he's not strange in a way that might immediately make you think. Morel takes on Romeo as something of a protégé, it's not hard to imagine him seeing himself as something of a sort of Mr. Miyagi and something of a friend. He appears to have no others. As well as a go-between between seeing Romeo as a means to begin a relationship with his attractive older sister Ladine, played by Vicky McClure, to whom Morel has taken a fancy. Morel's unhealthy presence creates a distance between Romeo and Knox, especially when Knox becomes bedbound after spinal surgery leaving Knox perfecting magic tricks alone in the, his bedroom and Romeo being trained as some sort of ninja? <laughs> at least in Morel's mind, I guess. The strange undercurrent that follows the at first pathetic but likeable but later capricious Morel surges to the surface after his date with Ladine ends poorly. 
and suddenly things take a darker, violent and more sinister turn as he takes out his humiliation on a number of innocents. While I really quite enjoyed A Room for Romeo Brass, it is a film of two difficult to reconcile parts. The two kids are great, and their awkward yet also effortless on-again, off-again friendship feels very natural and real. And their drifting apart and then back together again is entirely believable, and didn't need the catalyst of an outside influence to ring true. Paddy Considine, in his film debut, is also really good, albeit that he seems he doesn't quite have his acting skills completely honed and dialed in yet. There's humour, threat, and even a little pathos in Considine's performance, even if Morel's description of the physical abuse he received at the hands of his father feels like a not overly sophisticated attempt by the writers, Paul Fraser and Shane Meadows, to explain his character. I just don't get why both of these things, the childhood friendship and the violent, perhaps mentally or emotionally disabled outsider, are in the same film. If Meadows is trying to say something, then he's doing so in ways I'm failing to interpret. But I did still enjoy it. I just wish I had more answers to the questions the film leaves me with. Yeah, it's an interesting one, this. Um, again, not one I'd seen before. And uh, I, I I really enjoyed it, but I don't really disagree with anything you're saying there. It does feel like it's too paths of a film that have been smashed together like a lot of it feels like some kind of nice little charming coming of age um you know young adult adventure with the two friends getting on and then there's there's like literally one moment where barry constantine go, like goes from like kind of weird but okay to all out evil <laughs> and yeah. one scene is like oh this is now a very different film mm. <laughs> and, and um i was uh, I was on board with it, and I wanted to see where it was going. But I think, like yourself, Drew, I'm not quite sure I actually had a destination in mind. Uh, it's it's still fun to be along for the ride, but quite what it, what it was supposed to be saying about anything of it, or about um, Paddy Constantine's character, or situation, or anything else, is maybe a bit of a mystery to me. Um, so whether it had any kind of greater point, if you will, I'm not quite sure. But just in terms of just having a bunch of interesting characters bouncing off each other, which, to be honest, is what I like in most of Meadows' films, um, <laughs> it, it delivers on that scale. And I think Constantine is as a really strong debut performance. Uh, it makes for a very compelling uh, character and a compelling watch. Uh, yeah, like I say... Maybe not like yourself, not so sold in it having a greater point, or if it knew what it was trying to say about that that kind of those characters or, or their actions. But um, yeah, in terms of just being a, an interesting uh, film, definitely delivers on that front. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's uh, I had also not seen this one uh, before this episode. Again, I I don't know why that is. I'm strange like that. I really really like Shane Meadows, so didn't want to watch all of his work. Yeah, <laughs> saving it up for something. I don't know. I Seems like even took the cellophane off of a DVD for this one. <laughs> yeah, but I, I did enjoy it. It's just like it's like I was enjoying two different films that were happening at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't quite get what the the point of that is. Um, guess uh, like the. The friendship between the two boys, like that, that felt so real. They're really good actors. They seem to have a knack for finding sort of non-actors and and getting great performances out of them. Yeah, 
uh, we're going to come in a couple of films time to probably the the absolute zenith of that um, in terms of Thomas Turgis but Andrew Shim's great and he's gone on to be in a, in a few more of Shea Meadows films mm. since then but they feel they feel very natural and the the relation again this is another one based on um his real experiences Shane Meadows lived next door to his co-writer Paul um, Fraser who was bed bound for several months with a back injury or something at some point so it's like he's basing on real stuff that kind of comes through I feel it feels real and just the the way these two kids are sort of I don't know it's almost like some sort of embarrassment goes with them like out of nothing because that sort of thing happens when you're a teenager you're an idiot <laughs> It comes with the territory, um, and it's got like not things. Things don't necessarily make sense. Like why you're friends with someone, why you're not, and that comes across really well here. And then at the same time, you've got Paddy Constant, who is great and like also very comical. And he turns up in his um, his shell suit in particular. Uh, how I don't miss shell suits, uh, and then but then suddenly the, the sinister turn there it doesn't quite come out of nowhere in that as much as there's that one scene with Knox where Morel threatens him because he's pissed off at him having sort of ridiculed him mm-hmm. and, I, and I thought that that scene was actually going to end differently it felt like it was going to be like oh I'm just messing with you and it doesn't and then yeah. that sets up with like oh right okay it's not quite what I thought he was this guy um, but at the same point it just that kind of that last twenty minutes feels like it's dropped in from another film entirely. <laughs> yeah, and again, I still enjoyed it, but I, I am left with questions. <laughs> I don't have a I'm lot left to, with many questions. <laughs> I don't have a lot to add. I, this was my first watch of this film. Also, I I really enjoyed Paddy Considine's performance up until the point that the the movie pivots uh on that that moment at the beach uh, which completely blindsided me yeah um and i think in retrospect thinking about it um i suppose some of the the clues are are there um but it does like you say it does feel a a little bit of a frankenstein's monster really and i'm I'm not sure where they were coming from with that character but paddy considine i mean i will watch all day every day and just about anything um and i hadn't yeah, realized that this yeah i hadn't realized that this had been his first feature role until uh until i went back through his uh his profile the other night on imdb i feel like he's an actor who's been around longer than that but um yeah morals an interesting character if not an entirely believable one uh but i think his sort of goofishness is so disarming initially. Um, I think Constantine does an amazing job with that, which is the reason why it feels like such a shock um, that the the sort of pivot point happens the way it does. But yeah, I mean, to what end? And then, you know, uh, like you say, and uh, I think you said, Drew, the, the last twenty minutes of this film almost become like Ben Wheatley's kill list. <laughs> um, yeah, just not what I was expecting at all. Um, I do kind of want to rewatch this again with the commentary on because hopefully that mm. might shed a bit more light on things. Um, but also, not least of all, because apparently um, your young lad playing Knox uh, is it Ben Marshall. Yes. Yeah. Apparently, he was so insufferable on set that uh, at some point in the the commentary, um, I've I've read that Considine basically remarks that actually that that scene with him on the beach was no problem at all, threatening a child because <laughs> Considine couldn't wait to strangle him. <laughs> he, he really did not like him at all. Which I think is a wonderfully <laughs> frank and, and honest moment in a DVD commentary that I'd kind of like to hear. 
uh, first hand. Um, also, might explain why Andrew Shims returned several times and she made those things, but he hasn't. Yes, exactly. I, I suspect that's the case. Uh, it was an absolute nightmare, apparently. Um, so there you go. But yeah, again, um, it's uh, an interesting piece and i'll never i'll never fault the film for being interesting it just um it just doesn't feel quite so fully formed as uh a film we'd be talking about in a, a couple of films time i suppose yeah um can you, I, i'd very much recommend this I, I would recommend all of these bar small time i guess mm. to some degree or another but it's yeah i would like to go back and listen to the commentary as well okay i had sort of intended to but um in my typical way of such things i left all of the preparation for this to the last moment because mm. you know what use is time which i had plenty of um when i could have filled it with useless youtube videos so, you know. hey. uh, but yes I'd, I'd like to go back and hear the commentary um give some sort of insight into what, what he was thinking about um but there was like a an overarching plan whether it worked or not i don't know but um, yeah. it'd be interesting to know if nothing else this this film has has given me a line of dialogue which immediately entered my top three film quotes of all time so i'm happy with that uh, would you care to share what that particular line of dialogue well was? i already have shared it tonight drew is that your introduction craig yes <laughs> that wonderful moment as he's walking past the group of guys and his purple shell suit on the way to try and uh, to try and ingratiate himself with Lidine and he suddenly pulls a karate pose. I can't destroy you today lads, I'm on very serious business <laughs> yeah. Oh dear okay. Well, talking of lines of dialogue that got me into the film, um, I'm going to move on to one where um, Bobby Carlyle sort of waking up in a drunken stupor and shouting Fanny at the TV was enough to sell me at the start of a film. Um, and that's Once Upon a Time in the Midlands. Scott, I believe that you're going to tell us about that. Yes, um, Once Upon a Time in the Midlands. What if a Western was set in Nottingham and was also a rom-com? Well, that's an odd question, you weirdo, but it turns out we have an answer <laughs> in Meadows 2002 joint, Once Upon a Time in the Midlands. Uh, the stranger from out of town in this case is Begbie, or, well, Robert Carlyle's Jimmy, who has seen the, the love of his life, Shirley Henderson's Shirley, uh, turned down a televised proposal from her current boyfriend, Therese Evans' deck. Uh, so affected is he by this that he abandons his fellow gang members, headed by James Cosmo's Billy, when a clown robbery goes wrong. It may or may not have been official clown business. Hard to say. <laughs> Fleeing the cops and eventually his gang, he tries to inveigle his way back into Shirley's life and that of his daughter, much to Dex's discontent. He's seemingly far too soft to stand up to Jimmy's hard man act and suffers a collapse of self-esteem. Much of the film is then focused on Dex building up his courage to confront Jimmy and save his relationship with Shirley, which is perhaps also echoed in the strained supporting relationship between Jimmy's foster sister, Kathy Burt's Carol, and Ricky Tomlinson's Charlie. Now, like a lot of Meadows' work, Once Upon a Time in the Midlands is not exactly over-encumbered with plot, uh, this having more or less the minimum viable frameworks to bounce a few characters together, and I suppose it works well enough for what it needs to do. While it does have more than a few moments of emotional and dramatic heft, for the most part it's kept fairly right and bleasy and makes for an enjoyable, if not life-changing or genre-redefining experience. Carlisle and Henderson come out of this the best, uh, really uh, portraying a fairly believable experience and getting across the the reasons for their previous attractions and breakups uh, well enough through small actions and reactions rather than through exposition dumps. Reese Evans's deck is rather less well served than perhaps a touch too broadly written and played, but I suppose that rather goes with the territory. Overall, I'm not sure there's an awful lot more to meaningfully say about Once Upon a Time in the Midlands. It's a uh, 
reasonably enjoyable comedy that refreshingly eschews the mawkishness that similar works like Brassed Off and The Full Monday arguably tended towards, if my memory serves. And you and I know there's no guarantee that it does. Um, worth watching, but <laughs> by no means the most vital part of Meadows' body of work. A left shin, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, th- this was one I uh, conspicuously left out of our um, Once Upon a Time episode of a couple of years ago uh, for this. Um, yeah. Which is probably fine. I don't think it fits in with most of no, those no, other things. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a good time with this. I, I don't think it's saying an awful lot, but sort of as a kind of slice of life yeah. um, thing with some believable characters, it works tremendously well. What I particularly appreciated was the the relationship in particular between Kathy Burke's character and Mickey Thompson's character. Yeah. That sort of slightly complicated family that, that absolutely exists. Yes. That they they're they're married, but they're sort of acting like they're not married, but they're still friends, and they live very close to each other, and like those sort of things exist. Though humans are complicated, people have relationships like that. You tend not to see them in films. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite refreshing to see something like that on film and portrayed in a way that's absolutely believable. Yeah. How does this work? I don't know. They make it work. That's what people do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's believable that there's clearly tenderness between Kathy Burke and Ricky Tomlinson. Their characters feel like, yes, they care for each other. It's, it's a complicated relationship. Okay. The way that they real. so clearly infuriate each other in the way that only the person you love the most can possibly do to you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's a real strong suit of Shane Meadows films that, that these characters feel like real people. Yeah. They don't feel like film constructs. Yeah. They don't feel like they're delivering dialogue that no human would ever speak. <laughs> yeah. While such dialogue can be incredibly compelling, incredibly interesting, incredibly satisfying to hear, it's also very also very much incredibly not what an actual human being would say to another human being. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Shea Meadows films very conspicuously are, are the opposite of that. So yeah, it's I guess it's it's slight but it's just it's a slice of life film of a of a life that is quite interesting and, and quite real. Yeah. Also Shane Meadows has found the the trick to making Shirley Henderson's voice even vaguely tolerable, which <laughs> is to force her to not use um her own accent and to use a um a Midlands accent. Uh, if she tries an, a sort of southern English accent, she's also intolerable. She uses her own accent from Fife, intolerable. Because she's that horrible breathy squeaky thing which goes through me. <laughs> and that's maybe my voice would go through her. That's fine. That's not the problem. She's like, I find her voice difficult to tolerate. But here, she's absolutely fine. Uh, and to be fair to her, she's she's really done a great performance, and she does a lot, a lot with responses. Kind of like you said, Scott, when she's realizing how bad Jimmy is for her. Hmm. There's no expository dialogue around it. It's just it's her, her reaction. Yeah. When he's just like sitting his bum in that chair, drinking beer, saying, oh no, you're doing a fine job. You can do this all yourself. Yeah. So I really appreciated that. It didn't prompt like a five minute speech of, you don't appreciate me for what? I'd. It's like, it's a very obvious about all that kind of stuff. That yeah. doesn't you need to be signposted. Yeah. From, yeah. from that reaction yeah. shot of her, of just her face falling, basically. Like, hmm. you, see, you understand that she at least physically and maybe emotionally too, had some sort of feelings for him still. It wasn't her choice to end that relationship. He just sodded off. Mm. But then you realise that, oh, wait, no, things are, things are not yes. a, as they were in my memory. Yeah. And it's us all in her face. It's a really great performance. Um, well, there are bits of note that I'm quite amused by, um, which are largely hair-based, <laughs> which is um, Ricky Tomlinson's literal hat hair. 
<laughs> that really made me chuckle for some reason when he lifted his cowboy hat and all the hair came off with it. <laughs> and obviously, Shane Meadows' bingo wig. <laughs> Why did he stop um, appearing in his film with terrible, terrible wigs? I think I saw Shane Meadows' bingo wig when we were supporting the Sex Pistols back in 77. <laughs> Hell of a band. Does sound like a band, doesn't it? Shane Meadows bingo wig. Um <laughs> or actually, do you know what it sounds like? It's the sort of pub quiz name we would have come up with in the past. <laughs> yeah. But what is strange about this film though, it's like is kind of how, how they suggest that the characters are in terms of their merits and how they're actually portrayed. Because Jimmy, he's a criminal, general ass hat, and Reese Finn's deck, while yeah, he's not given as much of the room to breathe as a character as Jimmy. It's like, he's a loving partner, he's a business owner. But one of these people beats up clowns <laughs> and the other has a car that they have named. And additionally, the name of that car is Baby. <laughs> one of these people is performing laudable community service and the other is a menace to society. <laughs> and it's perhaps not how you'd expect that to be. <laughs> Uh, said clowns that were beaten up uh, I think there's three of them and apparently two of them are Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer yes <laughs> which is very uh, strange when they beat up the clowns at the start too there's a clown I thought that looks really like Bob Mortimer yes it was not in a way like, like I think that's Bob Mortimer so yes. oh that looks like Bob Mortimer <laughs> and then you get to the end credits and they show you oh wait that was Bob Mortimer <laughs> <laughs> that was very weird but you know very much appreciated yes <laughs> I haven't seen this film Fair enough. Um, but you probably should. I, I, you're probably not going to go wrong with any of these Shane Meadows films bar the first one, Craig. Mm-hmm. Yes. For any that you haven't got around to seeing yet. Hi. We, we are going to get around to one that I know you have seen and not for the first time. Indeed. Is 2004's Dead Man's Shoes. Hi. If Steven Soderbergh decided to one day come to the Midlands and film a no-budget rural revenge thriller, which, let's face it, is the kind of thing that Soderbergh might conceivably do, then it might look a lot like Dead Man's Shoes, Shane Meadows' 2004 collaboration with Paddy Considine, who here both stars and adopts co-writing duties. Considine plays Richard, a returning soldier who stalks the Derbyshire village of Matlock, looking to avenge the treatment of his disabled brother Anthony at the hands of a gang of petty local drug dealers. Through the use of grainy black and white inserts which recount the abuse of Anthony, Meadows gradually builds some understanding of why it is Richard is quite so vengeful. Vengeful enough, in fact, to don an old Russian gas mask and set about openly taunting the gang, cultivating a sense of inevitable violence, before finally picking the gang off one by one with axes, knives, bare hands... Whatever feels appropriate at the time, really. (laughs) It's nothing new, really, and Dead Man's Shoes is just about as bare bones as it gets. Meadows and Considine don't seem particularly focused on embellishments of plotting, in general, I suppose, given what we've discussed already. (laughs) Um, And once again, the sense of a cast left to improvise the majority of the dialogue suggests that any script which might exist is probably more a slight set of stage directions. Where the movie does make an impression is in its willingness to spend time with the cast of antagonists. Indeed, I'm fairly convinced we actually spend more screen time in the presence of the gang than we do with Richard, and that's not something your average revenge thriller can claim. Once again, Meadows is working with a cast of relative unknowns, though one or two faces have that familiar feeling which, for a UK audience at least, suggests they've probably been on an episode of Casualty at some point or another in the last 30 years. (laughs) 
Once again, the improvisational nature of their interactions lends a veneer of believability to what is, at times, a slightly daft story. So while Richard is teleporting in and out of homesteads like Michael Myers, we are at least distracted by the authentic dynamic between manipulative gang leader Sonny and his weak-willed crew of sheep. Speaking of atypical revenge fare, you're also unlikely to find Liam Neeson portraying a hero quite as unsympathetic as Richard as he travels the world mopping up pesky cardboard cutout Arabs blathering on about his particular set of skills. You know who has got a set of skills? Paddy Considine. I've always found him a uniquely compelling screen presence and here he's no different. Balancing a sense of grief fueled nihilism with an utterly believable aura of danger and an abandoned sense of morality that the character himself acknowledges to be unacceptable in the film's final act. Again, it's not a complexity you'd expect to encounter in a film built on a premise so slight, but it goes to demonstrate what can be achieved when a director with Meadows' intuition, I suppose I'd call it, is willing to put their trust in an actor of Considine's considerable calibre. I've always really appreciated Dead Man's Shoes as an example of the type of filmmaking almost anyone could attempt, these days with not a lot more than an iPhone, I suppose, but which, when executed well, still has the power to unsettle. That's not to say it doesn't require a huge amount of skill and talent, but Dead Man's Shoes is one of those rare movies that is powerful while making the pursuit of movie making feel accessible. Yeah, interesting one, this. I, I, another one of the... Despite your many exhortations to do so i hadn't seen this until the other day um it's it is really good um i think primarily because it's the paddy constantine show um and all that first you know hour or something um, i enjoyed well enough um but it wasn't doing anything particularly you know new if you like nothing i hadn't really seen before um maybe not with quite this accent applied to it but um you know nothing wildly out of the ordinary, apart from, again, perhaps Constantine's performance, which was very good. Um, what really sort of kicked me in the ass with this one was the final 20 minutes, uh, <laughs> maybe even 10, that that kind of turn where, where you know, the, the point where Constantine kind of realises what a monster he is, and I suppose arguably where the kind of somewhat twist of his brother uh, mm. <laughs> existence or non-existence kind of pops up in, into, into play. Um, uh, that but kind of... It doesn't recontextualize the film, but it, it, it certainly gives it a very different twist and a very different kind of feeling in the the mind as you as you leave it in that last little little section there. That last act is quite a trick, and I'm very appreciative of that. Um, <laughs> that 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 worked very well, and I think that that kind of elevates this uh, somewhat over what could have been a just uh, if it continued the way the first hour did. Say, um, it yes. would have been a film that you go through. That was quite a nice film. I, I enjoyed Sean Meadows' take on a genre staple uh, revenge thriller. Yeah, great, cool. But that little kind of twist of the knife at the end, um, almost literally, um, gives it a, a somewhat a different complexion, and I think makes it a, a kind of a somewhat more powerful film for it. And certainly. Uh, one that I would highly recommend, uh, even amongst the, the company it has today. Um, yes, but certainly something that you should all catch up on if you haven't done so already. Yeah, this is it's really quite a powerful film. Really, hmm. um, it, you're right, Craig. If you, if you look at the amount of screen time that he gets, Paddy Constantine isn't actually in this film a lot. Hmm. He feels like he is. Hmm. Such is his impact. And when I've seen people criticise this as being just some sort of like some kind of generic revenge thriller or slasher film and, and it absolutely doesn't feel like that to me at all, no, not in any way Absolutely not, like I am constantly baffled by this film's mediocre Metacritic score 
Yeah, it's um, not the first time that's going to be the case in oh. this episode, I think. Yeah, it's I've seen so, so much criticism. It's not just like, oh, it's just an English take on a you know slasher film. So it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels so much more, I guess, real. Mm. So much more personal than that. I mean, the twist, I guess, about Anthony is... I kind of knew it was coming because otherwise the scene in the pub near the beginning doesn't make sense that nobody recognised him. Yeah, I was going to say that's, yeah, if you're paying attention and particularly that scene in the pub, then it shouldn't really surprise, but... It gives it away, but... um, I think for most of the rest of the movie, you're not smart enough to handle it in a way that you can't quite be sure whether or not your suspicions are correct. Yeah, um, and there's nothing that seems sort of kind of just pulled out of its arse or anything like that. It just doesn't seem kind of silly or anything like that. Mm. So you imagine, like, Richard has him on his mind. So, like, to the, to externalise, that sort of makes sense. Yeah. And that's okay. Um, but again, if you're paying attention, you you know what's going on there. But just uh, that last, yeah, 20 minutes is particularly powerful, particularly affecting. There is only one problem, really, I have with this film, and it's it's not really the fault of anybody. I think it's just like you know how words work in this country, um, the UK, I mean, in particular, and that for all the Paddy Constantine's performance is extremely committed, extremely energetic, and um, powerful. When he uses the word "spaz" at the end. It feels like a comedy line, mm. and that kind of it doesn't ruin the end for me. But it just it's like a, it's like it falters right at the end because that line is that phrase is, or word is tended to be used as an insult, and and the way I don't think there's any way to deliver that without it feeling like it's meant to be some sort of comedy line, and, and that's like that's a one stumble right near the end. See that that bothers me. That scene I don't know because that that scene. Um threw me the biggest curveball um not necessarily because um Richard obviously sort of professes like you know to to the to the other guy like look look what you've made me become look, now I'm the monster so we've got to deal with this situation now but because in in that moment at which he, he uses that word as well he also unleashes the revelation which the more I think about it the more unbalanced it, it it makes me feel that he says his brother was an embarrassment to him. Yeah. So you've, yeah. you've spent the whole film assuming that they've got this really close relationship. And if you listen to a couple of other points, there's a couple of lines of dialogue between him and his clearly sort of at that point imaginary remembered um, brother, where there's a suggestion or there's at least a hint there that they, you know, that he might have... Um, he might have been mean to his brother a couple of times, but you're certainly not expecting him after all this to turn around and say, do you know what? He was an embarrassment to me. Yeah. And uh, that really caught me off guard. And that's, yeah. you know. Yeah, but I think that's, that's personal regret. Yeah. yeah. That scene for me. It's, it's not like he, he still feels that. It's like, Jesus, like what an idiot I was. Yeah. That that's how I treated my own brother. Yeah, absolutely. But it kind of um, makes you think, what what is compelling him to do this then out of a sense, you know, is it a sense of duty? Is it because he's he's come back a, a very different person since he's been in the army? Has, has being in the army made him, you know, ha, has that brought out a much more violent side in his character that's facilitating this behaviour? Would he have done it otherwise? I don't yeah, know. It just adds know. an extra layer just with that one 
just that one sentence just adds a completely different layer to this for me. Yeah, and there's also the fans like sort of kind of separate from the film, I guess, but the film is a bit of it. It's like, I mean, if someone's going to, if you set aside the the fact that sometimes people feel like they don't have a choice and the army's a good career for someone who feels like that, say they feel like a dead end situation or something like that, but someone who who isn't conscripted to the army but volunteers, like mm. volunteers for a career in which killing people is yeah. a it's a pretty likely chance, you know. It's a pretty good place for a psychopath not, to hide. <laughs> yes, they're, they're maybe not the be- the best person in the world to begin with. So you, you've got the like whether that he's a particularly you know bad person in the first place. Or yeah, what other thing I was going to say? It's like whether it's like you know it doesn't really matter whether he thought he was a uh, an embarrassment. Or it's like he was his family. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that counts more. It's like it doesn't. Like, you know, I can say all the word about my family, but you can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, that comes up in films quite a lot. It comes up in real life too, you know. So you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's like it's my brother. I'm going to say is a get. You know, you don't get to say that because he's not your brother. Mm-hmm. I'll defend him. Uh, um, so yeah, but as I said, that sort of I guess you may describe it as a stumble just because it, the the tone feels different. Not because of the film itself, but that that line at the end surrounded by all of that other like deeper stuff which is like it feels like a comedy line but that's because of the the culture that we're in it, it feels like that oh, that really powerful film fantastic performance by Paddy Constant, who feels like he's in it more than he actually is he's like a weirdly peripheral presence for almost all of it mm. um, he's sort of a boogeyman because they've flown about but you don't actually see a lot of him in this mm. one other thing I'd add is like quite a bit of praise for Tony Kebble who plays Anthony yeah yeah it's not kind of like an over-the-top portrayal of a um, sort of mentally disabled person. Um, and it's... There were some times where I think you could quite reasonably argue there are people with various mental disabilities that um, have acted. It would absolutely not be appropriate in this case, given the situations he's in, that I think you need someone yes. um, who really understands what those situations mean. Particularly the sexual yeah. ones, so it really needs to be a person, sort of, uh, for want of a better word, that doesn't occur to me. One normal person, a regular person, without any, you know, deficiencies or anything in any sort of way. Well, it would be um, abuse otherwise. Yeah, it, it simply wouldn't be appropriate. So you need to have someone who understands what those situations mean. Otherwise, yeah, it, it, it's for the actor or actors, they would be basically suffering the same abuse that the character does, which would just simply wouldn't be right. So I like Tony Kebble, who I've seen him quite a few things now. Um, yeah, he got a bit of profile for a while there, yeah. Yeah, um, he's in War Horse, which is actually not, not good War Horse, it's terrible, but Rock and Roll and a bunch of other stuff. I actually quite like Tony Kebble. He's, yeah, it's it's not kind of like an over-the-top performance of someone with a mental disability, a learning yes. um, deficit or something like that. It's, it's quite measured it's not over the top and I think he does a good job of just like just being on the right side of like selling that performance without just being caricature and as I say it needed to be someone who's like a start a sort of regular adult to do that role um, so I just like you finish with that I'll be a bit praised for Tony Cable. I think he does a really good job in that that role without yeah being a kind of almost cartoonish characters those things sometimes can be mm. yeah uh, agreed. Shall we move on then to This Is England, Drew? Yes. 
in an unidentified Midlands town in 1983, 12-year-old Sean, Thomas Turkus, is struggling. He seems to have no friends, is bullied at school, and is grieving the loss of his father, a soldier who died in the Falklands War. A chance encounter on the way home from school one day brings him a group of friends, in the shape of a disparate group of skinheads led by the adult Woody. The group, Woody in particular, are enamoured of Sean's spunk and attitude, and they take him under their collective wing, turning him into a skinheaded miniature, and with only the minimum of patronisation. Sean begins to flourish with this new group of peers, but the fun times end and make way for something much, much darker with the unexpected arrival of Stephen Graham's combo. Recently released from prison, another skinhead, but this time of the type most associated with the National Front and British National Party in the 1980s. Combo's behaviour and polemic splits the group, with some, Sean included, being swayed by his nationalist swill and ideas of what England is or what England should be, and those that remain with Combo partaking in such wholesome group activities as attending National Front meetings and terrorising South Asian shopkeepers with machetes. Sean grows up a lot in a very short space of time and receives quite the education around Combo, but he learns the truth about such people in a shocking scene in which a switch seems to flick inside of Combo and he violently attacks the one black member of Woody's skinhead group. After this, Shane Meadows reminds us that Sean is still only a child. Wiser, no longer innocent, but a child, and not irreversibly sullied. The film ends in a nod to the end of Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows, with Sean on the shore, discarding his English flag into the sea, bringing an end to this masterful amalgam of of coming-of-age tale, historical drama and social document, a film that I think it's hard to argue against being considered Shane Meadows' greatest work. While Thomas Turgus, 13 at the time of filming, rightly received the lion's share of the plaudits when This Is England was released, on returning to it, it is Stephen Graham's performance that I find most compelling. Mm. He is believably menacing and dangerous, despite his stature, but in both writing and performance, Combo is so much more than a simple thug, and Graham shows him as a confused, lost and conflicted person, unable to contain a violent nature. He's a terrible person, naturally, and nothing excuses his actions, but Graham shows that Combo can't simply be explained as racist scumbag. Something made him that way, and we can begin to guess at it through the portrayal. It's really a very powerful performance, and also one that can't have been easy. Graham's father was half Jamaican, and he's talked before about the abuse he received as a child due to that. Like the Clash song with which the film shares its name, this is not a positive and hopeful vision of its creator's home nation. And it is, to be frank, bloody bleak. It is, however, superb, and something I recommend very highly indeed. In common with a lot of the director's other work, though, it's not quite as entirely downbeat as you might think. And there's really more than a minor note of hope contained within for people, at least as individuals, if not in the collective. Powerful stuff. This was a hell of a film 15 years ago, and it's still a hell of a film. And I'd, mm. it's almost a, a trope to say it's, it's it's more powerful now than the time it was released. Um, but it probably is. Um, I, I don't know about more powerful, but as powerful. Yeah. Um, it's, and then you see things like the 
the aftermath of England's defeat in semi-finals, the Euro 2020. Yeah. And all the, the hideous racist outpour that came off that, like, it still is relevant. It never stopped being relevant, but I think for maybe for a while back when this came out, there was... <sighs> the more privileged of us could at least perhaps attempt to convince ourselves that this sort of thing was in the past, whereas <laughs> recent <laughs> events yes. have shown we're that that's post- not been quite the case. <laughs> We're in a post-racist future. Yeah, no. We're swiftly disabused (laughs) of that notion, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, I I also agree. Going back to this uh, and watching this, I hadn't hadn't, uh, seen this uh, since its release in the cinemas. And uh, yeah, Stephen Graham's performance really does stand out. Um, Mm, I'd also also recently seen him in um, the, I I guess it's a made-for-TV film, Help, uh, based around the... Covid, the kind of start of the kind of start of lockdown, you know, oh, Covid your, thing. It's you're killing Eve women in it. Yeah, yeah, and oh, he's he's incredible in that, which is a very another very powerful work that we might get to talk about at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, he's he's incredible in this, and he's he's been good in a lot of things. It's also nice to see uh, or to go back and uh, see a performance by uh, Joe Gilgan's uh, Woody. That whole early sort of first maybe in half an hour where it's kind of like you know skinheads as a positive force which you kind of forget about because it's been you know so co-opted by a national front co-opted isn't that yeah yeah it was a a cultural thing sort of like a a counterculture movement almost in Britain like mods or rockers or whatever anything like that yeah associated with Jamaican music and particularly black music yeah there was nothing racist about it to begin with exactly it was a purposely inclusive movement that got hijacked basically yeah yeah. which uh, is what makes that scene when you know Stephen Graham when um, Combo snaps and beats up Milky uh, because all of the the previous part of that is about how you know those original skinheads were behaving and uh, how inclusive they were and how it was uh, yeah. a way of joining the kind of various working class experiences that we all have together uh, to form to form closer bonds rather than to you know separate them and other people um, the way that it had became later on uh, and the way that kind of combo eventually succumbs to along with his uh, you know, prison mates and, and whatnot. And it, it's a really interesting revisiting that kind of <laughs> almost dichotomy of, of how of how it used to be and how it changed. And uh, yeah, hell of a performance as well from uh, Thomas. Sturgis, as uh, as we all say, uh, it's certainly Meadows's most strongly plotted uh, film. The narrative in this is, you know, really strong. Um, at the same time, as all the characters still feel very real and believable. Mm. Um, sadly, in a number of instances, uh, but mm. a lot of it is still incredibly powerful to this day. Um, yeah, and absolutely exhilarating watch and uh, again I completely agree as you say if you, you just hear the capsule review of this you would think it would be an absolutely miserable experience but no um, a lot of it is actually really quite joyful that whole first half hour is um, you know almost from a different film it's uh, an incredibly positive uh, experience for a lot of that and uh, you know quite funny um, for all of it um, with you know characters that are, that felt kind of you know real and relatable um, who then become corrupted by this poison uh, that is that is force fed to them at points and uh, even so even the end though as well scott it's not just it like the real hopeful message is that like sean discards this yeah yeah horrible um horrible ideology and that also you know it's like his innocence isn't completely corrupted because he's seen just before that final scene seen very much as a child again yeah when his mom's telling him 
you know, Milky will be okay, and like he's just thinking about his dad and stuff. It's like, you know, there's hope for humanity in there. Yeah, like you know, this this isn't irreversible either. Any idiot that gets involved in this, you know, can go back. Yeah. And I mean, look, we're saying idiots. It's uh, this film is also doing a really good job of showing how people can be can become uh, indoctrinated into this. Um, part of it yeah. was just you know being. I mean, to a degree, would he indoctrinate indoctrinates um, Tommy Torgus uh, Sean into the the group in the first place? But that's not really indoctrination. Rather than just being a friend, reaching out, mm-hmm. helping people, um, but yeah. taking that same. Um, that same impulse as to why someone would be receptive to being helped out. If you if you're helping someone out with an ulterior motive, as uh, soon becomes uh, apparent from what Combo was trying to do and get, getting people at the national front, you know, it, it's easy to see how you could be drawn into that if you're just a, if someone catches you on that bad day, um, where you would be more receptive to something like this. And it's uh, in that regard kind of terrifying. You know, if you yeah. if your guards down, if you're all your luck it's easy to see how you could be uh, suckered into um, this you know vortex of hatred um, it, it, it's not even just yeah. that so it's like the the, it, the film helps you understand too like the if someone feels himself in a sort of hopeless situation mm-hmm. and humans for basically the entire history of, of being humans have, have othered people yeah mm. um, tribalism and then trying to make other people um, sort of the enemy or something like, and particularly the setting of this film, huge unemployment. There's a war going on. There's you know real discontentment. Oh. There's Margaret Thatcher. So really, you know that's the enemy you should be going really against because Margaret Thatcher, you know, head of the evil team as she was back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, like you know, the, the the people are kind of lashing out. They're 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 at a loss. They're they're despondent. They're they don't have economic opportunities to feel lost, stuck. So they lash out at the immigrants and stuff and it's not acceptable, but it's perhaps understandable. Hmm. And then yes, you see people like Combo and the and particularly um Frank um Harper's character, the the National Front yeah. um candidate there, like weaponize that for their own ends. And people are not necessarily feeling that big themselves but they're like no 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 these are the results of the causes of your ills yeah. you know it's like um so that i think the film does a really good job of um showing that yeah so i, I twice i interrupted you now scott so i haven't completely broken your form sorry no i'm not sure i've got anything much more to say about that other than to recommend it as highly as i possibly can um yeah i agree probably meadows is the best film um a hell of a work. Um, I, to my shame, I've not seen any of the television series that he's uh, went on to produce based on This Is England, but I'll have to get around to that. Um, I had yeah. been going to ask if either of you had seen it because I, I specifically avoided it because mm. because of the in general dislike sequels and I thought, oh, really? And the film had been so good, mm-hmm. but coming back to watch and realizing it's still so good, and the fact that a lot of the characters come back, including Stephen Graham. I think I might want to check that out now. Yeah, I, I, I intend to. I mean, given given the reception that th- those series got and his other ones like The Virtues, I think was probably the only other significant one, um, they all seem to be quite well received. So, um, yes, something I will pick up for him, but can't comment on just now. I have nothing further to add. This is just kind of the final coming together of the last piece, I think, with it being a little bit more purposely plotted. Um, everything just coheres into... 
a really excellent hole with this uh, this film, and this I mean this is obviously the film that really got him profile, um, yeah. and for which he will be most remembered, I suspect, assuming that he doesn't come back to film, which I kind of feel like now would be a, now would be a really great time for you to come back to film <laughs> and tell us oh, all an important lesson, Shane. <laughs> at the same time, Craig, now is not a bad time to be in TV instead. It's not, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, it's not the downgrade that would have felt like in the past. No, absolutely. Um, so you can you can perhaps understand why he's decided to pursue that avenue. But um, I do hope he comes back to film someday. But I mean, it's hard to imagine um, making something that would be. I mean, iconic is a word that people throw around um, far too easily these days. But I feel like this is pretty close to it. <laughs> yeah yeah i just can i just uh, i'd like to come back to stephen graham once again like um I, I, perhaps you don't remember this craig i, I don't know but um, honestly, i trust my memory more than yours but um uh, i know you were quite negative about stephen graham in the past and i uh-huh. felt sort of similarly not quite strong i think but similarly mm-hmm. um and i changed my mind kind of around about the time he was in boardwalk empire yeah and then going back down, it's like, that Stephen Graham's actually a really good actor. And always has been, really yep. Where that sort of negative feeling came from. And I do remember it. Um, but going back down, and, and particularly in this film, it's like, oh, Jesus, I actually know he's really powerful. He's a hell of an actor. He really is. And you know, my favourite piece of work by Stephen Graham is when he was on CBB's Bedtime Stories. And I highly, <laughs> I, 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 oh, along with. It's not, it's not about the Germans. No, it's not. It's not. Um, and along with Tom Hardy's um, reading of oh, what was the good one? The, Tom Hardy did a fantastic one. You I must bring a hat. I, I remember Tom Hardy got yeah. on the CBS doing the bedtime story. Yeah, there's a couple. There, he did a couple, and I think the the second and third ones weren't great. But his his first one, uh, you must bring a hat. I think the book is called uh, was phenomenal. And Stephen Graham's reading is phenomenal. He's such. Uh, cheery, likeable guy in person in such stark contrast to so many of the characters he played and I don't know if it was just maybe his sort of typecasting early on that sort of really put me off him but You do remember it then? Yeah, absolutely Yeah, absolutely, And but understanding his range now, like I've done a complete 180 on the guy and I feel a bit silly for not appreciating that sooner um, Yeah, I do too Yeah, it was Boardwalk Empire for me that kind of changed my mind, he's playing Al Capone in the Boardwalk Empire Yeah uh, I see what I really like. I think it's really good in that. It's kind of it's kind of backfilled everything for me, and then going back to this thing, I was like, oh, actually, Jesus! Yeah, as much as as I said, Thomas Turgis got so much praise. It was great because he was thirteen at the time. He was a cocky wee bastard, apparently by all accounts. You know, he was he was demanding money for his audition. Um, he'd been kicked out of his own school play because of bad behaviour, and he's great, and I really like him. But no, it's. Uh, it's Stephen Graham that's the real, like, the rock of this film. Yeah. You're right. It's not just simply a racist thug or something like that. There's so much more going on there. I didn't watch uh, Boardwalk Empire until uh, long after it had initially screened and stuff. But I, and maybe, if I, maybe if I had seen that, I'm, I'm, my opinion might have um, turned sooner. I don't know. Because in that, like, Yes, he's he's playing ostensibly a bad guy, but his relationship with his son um, and that in particular yeah, really humanises him. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, he is. He's he's right up there in my estimation now, and I, I kind of look forward to seeing him uh, any time I see his name in a in a, a film or TV series. Yeah, I mean, 
because even going back like so um, we have a, a putative um guy Ritchie episode in the works in the in the background and so i've been watching some of those again and you know tommy's kind of a kind of joke character but you still feel like a value even in like smaller roles like that tommy and um, snatch so yeah yeah i really like stephen Graham. and what i heard him on fairly recently i think was desert island discs in radio 4 but he was talking about abuse he received because his father's his half jamaican half swedish i believe right and even though he quite clearly looks very white which is why he was able to play this role, roles like Al Capone. But like he suffered like horrendous abuse as a kid in the seventies, growing up in the early eighties. Um, so it's like it's a really bold move to take this role. That yeah. must have been really difficult for him. <laughs> yeah. So just like on a personal note, it's like Jesus, like all the kudos to you for taking on the show because that can't have been easy. Um, and then the, the, the bonus is that, like the role, his performance is particularly good. Aye. Okay, after all of our effusive praise for Shea Meadows and, in this case, particularly Stephen Graham, we're going to move on to something that has no Stephen Graham but has lots of Shea Meadows. That's a terrible linking device, but that's the best I can come up with just now. Scott Summerstown. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Summerstown, which sees Thomas Turgus returning as the imaginatively named Tom, occasionally Tomo, uh, a young un fleeing from, quote-unquote, the north to old London town, <laughs> where the streets are paved with, in this case, beatings from a local group of youths. Uh, Tom soon finds himself sleeping rough in the titular Somerstown area, but strikes up a friendship with Peter Jagiello's Marek over from Poland with his father, roaming the streets with a camera while his father works on the overhaul of the St Pancras train station to accommodate Eurostar, who funded the film, which may perhaps explain a few otherwise mildly inexplicable moments. Uh, while Tom's fleeing uh, some family trauma and isolation, Marek has some of his own going on, worrying that his father is spending too much time drinking with his new friends and too little time with him, so it's perhaps no surprise the two wind up fast friends, strained only by falling for the same unattainably pretty waitress at local cafe, Eliza Lasowski's Maria, who's a good five years older. Uh, their various low-key scrapes and escapades, mixed with a touch of pathos, uh, makes up the bulk of the slender running time, and most entertaining they are too. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before. There's not a great deal of narrative getting in the way of the character interactions here, and indeed almost nothing in the way of drama, barring a couple of arguments and a closing act trip to Paris via the convenient and reasonably priced Eurostar service. Consult your doctor to see if Eurostar is right for you. Eurostar should only be consumed as part of a balanced diet, and your Eurostar may be at risk if you don't keep up repayments. Eurostar. It spots for dinner. <laughs> of course, I joke. And while I don't think you could say that the Eurostar references are anything other than shoehorned in, they're infrequent enough that this should not be written off as a glorified advert, as you'd be missing what might just be Meadows' most charming and perhaps also his funniest film. It's carried in large part by the charisma of Turgus, whose cheeky wide boy act is a very enjoyable thing to watch and marries well with Jigello's uh, straight man act. Jigelio also gets the best dramatic moments, his strained relationship with his obviously loving but troubled father and separation from his mother, feeling all too believable, and a reminder that there's more to unite the working classes from around the globe than there is to separate them, which makes this a bit of a harder watch for near-communist Europhiles like myself than a post-Brexit world, <laughs> but that's not the fault of the film. It's the fault of stupid racists. Anyway... A charming little film with great central performances from the young cast and a very enjoyable supporting turn from Perry Benson's Ersatz Del Boy. It's well worth putting on your radar. Some films are just nice. Yes, um, once again, proving there are 
um, our politics, Scott, you and I, and I think most of the cricket are like pretty much identical. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was quite worried about returning to this because when this was released, I was exceptionally effusive about it. Uh, indeed, I was so enthusiastic about it that a quote from my review of it back at the time was used in the press materials for this film. <laughs> So I was like, oh God, please let this, this better be good. <laughs> um, and it's not quite as good as I remember, but mostly. Yeah. Um, I just think I'm a miserable old bastard now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just lovely. It's a, it's a surprisingly short film. Yeah. It's, it's barely feature length. Minutes. Yeah, barely feature yeah, length. Yeah. Um, something I've quite appreciated with Shea Meadows, like, his films are as long as they need to be. Yeah. And no longer, yes. <laughs> with, with the exception of Small Time, which needed to be not made. But, um, I guess he's got to get to his next film. With some, uh, it, It's just lovely. The way I described it at the time was being, even though it's in black and white, it radiates sunshine. Hmm. That still comes through to me. It's just, it's a joyous little film. And does that have much to say? Not really, I guess. There's another wonderful performance from Thomas Dargus, um, you know, he's, he's not always like, he's a bit of a cheeky soul, yeah. frankly, in some of it. But, you know, those people exist. Um, and he's a kid with a kind of crappy background, having been raised in a children's home with no other family. It's just, it's really nice. The ending section where it finally turns to colour, but kind of 8mm home video stuff. Yeah. It's probably a bit unrealistic, but you know what? I don't care. <laughs> Yeah. It's just nice. It's when there are some unpleasant things that happen in the film, particularly when uh, Tom was assaulted and has his stuff stolen. But other than that, it's just it's just this beautiful, charming, warm, lovely little film that just makes me happy. <laughs> Whereas there was more films that made me happy, more anything that made me as happy as this film makes me. You know, honestly. A person in a heavy Polish accent telling someone to shit in a bag and throw it out of the window ought not to amuse me as much as it does, but it does. <laughs> yeah, and, and the idea, that the, the notion that this came from basically a, a marketing call, that this was to promote St Pancras Station and, and Eurostar, like, it turned into a film that's not just like competent, but like excellent. Yeah. And charming and delightful and wonderful and funny and it's like, that's incredible. Yeah, and a lot of people, well, at least a lot of critics, seem to write it off purely on the basis that the funding came from, broadly speaking, a commercial enterprise um, in a way that I hadn't before, and that that seems to really be doing it a disservice. I can I can kind of see their point in a a kind of wider contextual um, idea, but if you just actually watched the film, then. It, it's good. Watch the film. Just appreciate the film. Where the money came from, as long as it's not an organ farm or you know, <laughs> the, the Eurostar part of it is like barely in there anyway. Mm. It's almost entirely in the relevance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And another thing I said in my review back at the time was that I was really, really salty about Michael Lee's happy-go-lucky at the time because you know that's because garbage. It's awful. Yes. Eddie Marston. Yes. Um, but like. I, I said that this was the quote that was used in the press material at the time was like, like, like attention, Mike Lee, this is how you make a happy film, like an <laughs> upbeat film. Uh, I'm really pleased to see that it that it still stands up. It's um, 
I don't know, it's just such a, a, a lovely film. It's, I mean, again, it, it's slight. I don't think it has a particularly a lot to say. Just like real people. Um, and they'd said to at the time that it's, uh, you know, that Shea Meadows is known for more downbeat films. This is, I'm quoting from one review on the OneLiner.com. <sighs> Having gone back, I don't actually think Shea Meadows films are downbeat at all. There's, there's always this, it's more than a kernel. There's, there's a strong, like, this message of hope in there. But this is one where rather than it being a sort of like a, a core of hope and that the things can get better, it's like the whole film is just like lovely. Yes, there are those, you know, some kind of bad stuff in the background of some of the characters, but this is just, it's just such a joyous film. Yeah. It's not as complete a film as this is England. It doesn't have as much to say, but it's, like, it's just, it's bloody nice. And you know what? Sometimes nice is just real nice. Mm-hmm. I like nice. I'm fed <laughs> up of not nice. There's too much of that in the world. <laughs> this is just a, a charming, lovely little film. Yes, indeed. I still haven't seen it, so. <laughs> oh, please remedy that, quick. It's a lovely wee thing. It's, it, it's surprisingly short. It's not 70 minutes. It may not be much beyond an hour. Hour and 11, according to IMDb. Yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of remarkable. And it's not like, that's not the material. It's like, this is a story musical. This is a story I want to tell with these characters. That's the material I have for that. That's all it needs. You know, no unnecessary padding, um, but not like edited unnecessarily or anything like that. It's just, it's just lovely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, even like, it doesn't have, actually have a great many characters. Uh, there's Maria, I guess a cafe shop owner, Marek's dad, Perry Benson and Tomo and Maria. Yeah, that's about it. Mm. But they, again, it's a, a recurring theme through this episode. They feel like real people. Yeah. You can imagine meeting people. I, I, I guess there's... Um, the Game of Thrones woman, whose name immediately escapes me, that's in it too. But um, but there's not many characters. They, they feel real. They don't feel like caricatures or anything. And and I had a point somewhere. The point is gone. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's just nice. Nice is good. I like nice. Nice is underrated. <laughs> Shall we round things out with a look at Ledonk and Scorsese? Yes, um, my mind's like an episode of Twin Peaks, uh, says one of the characters in Donkey <laughs> Scorsese, and I'm not entirely sure what he means at the point, but if he case it's like sort of confusing but also wonderful, sure, that works. Mm-hmm. After his genuinely quite sinister performances in A Room for Romeo Grass and particularly Dead Man's Shoes, it's nice to be reminded of Paddy Constantine's comedy acting chops. Also insert here, Andy in Hot Fuzz. Hmm. Uh, here, in his third collaboration with longtime friend Meadows, he plays the roadie and wannabe talent promoter Ladonk, as he uses a job working with these arctical monkeys all the young folks are into at the gig in Manchester to try and engineer an opportunity for Scorsese, Dean Palunchuk, an unexpectedly gifted, gifted young rapper whom Donk has taken under his wing. Recalling in style other mockumentaries like This is Spinal Tap, Ledonk was shot in only five days and on a budget of less than £50,000 in the run-up to what was a real concert. And it's a remarkably accomplished film given these constraints. Key to this is Constantine's very committed, very funny and almost entirely improvised performance and some 
genuinely quality rhymes from Polanchuk. And it's really funny. And I don't have a lot more to say about it, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, what, what, what more do you say? It's a mockumentary about Paddy Considine's so, I mean, quite impressively in character the whole time, the way with it doesn't f- let slip, but doesn't feel doesn't feel improvised for the most part. It feels tight, um, with the occasional sort of slightly meta nod, and the whole the whole thing feels quite meta actually. Um, nod to his previous performance in Shea Meadows films, and I, I guess I'd like to see the documentary about the mockumentary in which Shea Meadows directs Shea Meadows directing a documentary. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, I don't have a lot more to say because it's kind of a slight film. Again, very slight running time. It's just fun. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, Constantine and uh, Meadows have been friends for a while. I think there's been a number of like short films they've made together with LeDonk in it. I've not seen any of them, but they were just checking his IMDb page. So there's a, a number of them going back to the kind of late 90s. So uh, in a way, it's kind of revisiting that, which I guess perhaps is maybe why it feels maybe more polished than you might expect if it was just coming from, you know, fresh from whole cloth. Um uh, I enjoyed this an awful lot back in the day uh, when I first saw it. I've not really watched it at all since or really thought about it in the intervening time, uh, revisiting it. Um, I still enjoyed it. I'm not sure I really got anything more out of it. Um, whereas the kind of, you know, the classics of the, the mockumentary genre, like um, Spinal Tap, is just, it's clearly kind of aping itself towards. I can, I've watched Spinal Tap numerous times and got yeah. something funnier out of it each time. Um, it, it kind of really does kind of grow with almost every rewatch or listening to the commentary and all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas I, I don't think I'm going to ever quite get that from LeDonkin Scorsese, but that does not stop it being quite funny on the first time through. Um, I think, uh, again, yeah, you say Paddy's performance is fantastic and uh, really funny. Uh, Scorsese's beats are good well his rhymes are um, you, you've got to worry about the beats because it is a lot of beats um, uh, <laughs> it's very it's very funny um, everyone I think who's any um, interest in, in Meadows' work should watch this at least once um, it's a very slight thing um, It's there's nothing in here that's even remotely as powerful there's, there's not even anything as like dramatically impactful as you got in ooh, something like um, Once Upon a Time in the Midlands for example um, but it's probably funnier, and um, what's wrong with that? It's funny. That's a good thing if you're in the market for a comedy. So, yeah, definitely uh, worth uh, watching if you're not done so already. Um, not really redefining the genre, but it's certainly a very worthy um, addition to the genre. I think you're in a hiding to nothing if you compare it to this as Spinal Tap. Because it's the best. It is yes, probably the best. Spinal Tap is, yes. This is Spinal Tap. Yes. But it's for something produced in five days. Yeah, yeah. Yes, there's there's some preparation for it, but five days on a budget of less than fifty grand, it's impressive. Yes, um, and especially given that Paddy Considine's role is almost entirely improvised. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's incredibly good. And Dean Palinchuk as Scorsese, he he's got some skill. Yeah, uh, he reminded me a bit. There's there was a rapper on. Adam and Joe's, oh, what was it called? They did a series of podcasts sponsored by Coca Cola. I don't remember those either of you. Oh, no. <laughs> um, with like kind of like Coca Cola new talent or something. There's an article. There's a rapper on there called Phaser who did a really good James Bond inspired rap. <laughs> they really <laughs> <a bit>. uh, 
that's a deep cut. Phaser's <laughs> <laughs> yes, James Bond inspired rap. <laughs> yeah, deep cuts are kind of weird, like when you've got a memory, it's a good smile. It's like, it's, it's, right up, it's, it's right up there with Eminem dissing Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he reminds me, actually, Scott, you'll know him. I don't know if you do, Craig. It's a less uh, polished, less finished version, but his range remind me quite a bit of Decisive. Yeah. No, it's not ringing a bell. He's worked with DJ Format quite a lot. Yeah. Um, Derek Crisp is his um, real name, which is uh, just as unassuming <laughs> as Dean Palinchuk, I guess. Yeah, he's he's got really good rhymes. It's kind of, you don't expect that from the way he... He's got, he's got no confidence around him. When he's on the mic, he's really good. He's actually clearly a skilled rapper. By the constant having the great time just sort of off the cuff coming up with this kind of a bit of a get guy who kind of fancies himself um, a bit better than he is but you know if we kind of well, a bit of self-awareness coming at the end it's just nice I just uh, from from your review back at the time Scott you said um, for film which is not only improvised but also shot over a mere five days the quality it's achieved is remarkable also it should by rights be mean that we take a new Shea Meadows film every month which would be awesome <laughs> Yes, Didn't work yes out that it way. would. Yes. I want more Shea Meadows films, please. <laughs> Maybe Meadows just realised that the ultimate message that he needed to impart upon the world was that, was that Deirdre Bardlow should probably calm down. And maybe she has done by this point. I don't know. I don't, don't watch Coronation Street, so it's hard to tell. <laughs> I guess you've not seen this one, Greg. Nope. It, it's an hour long. You could probably save yourself well by watching it. Oh, I may. So that will wrap us up for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us for this reason or any other, then please do email at podcast at com or facebook.com slash fudzonefilm or at fudzonefilm on Facebook. And until next time, we shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure that these boys will do too. Undoubtedly. Calm down, Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> Calm down, Ill Dogden. <laughs> Calm down, Fanny Craddock. Calm down, Jimmy Nesbitt <laughs> Calm down Bob the Builder <laughs> And calm down <laughs> Curtis Stigers <laughs> They are all very calm now <laughs> <laughs>